Noam Chomsky. Uh, in his uh, autobiography, Bertrand Russell identified three passions that had uh, informed his life. Uh, the longing for love, the search for knowledge, and the unbearable pity for the suffering of mankind. And it seems to me that I know nothing about Noam's longing for love, but uh, it seems to me that there are analogues in the other two domains, certainly a search for understanding in domains of uh, study of the mind, and uh, um, a kind of articulate anger at the institutions which cause the uh, suffering of mankind. Uh, he's worked essentially on, well, to use his own terms, um, Plato's problem and Orwell's problem, and in his work on uh, mind, it's essentially Plato's problem, and again to invoke Bertrand Russell, the way Russell stated it, was what Plato's problem was, uh, how comes it that human beings whose contacts in the world are brief and personal and limited are nonetheless able to know as much as they do? And this afternoon, uh, we heard Noam uh, address that issue in the context of studies of the mind. Uh, on the other hand, Orwell's problem is sort of the flip side of that. Um, and we can see Orwell as seeking to explain why we know and understand so little, um, even though the available evidence uh, is so impressive uh, in certain domains. And what Orwell was concerned with was the ability of totalitarian systems to instill beliefs that are widely and firmly held, uh, although they're at variance with obvious facts. And uh, much of Noam's political work has been addressing Orwell's problem and uh, examining the kinds of justifications uh, that are given for uh, American foreign policy and uh, many other uh, political dimensions. And uh, the solution that he has advocated uh, throughout his work um, is that one seeks to discover the factors that, that block insight and uh, understanding and to ask why those factors are, are so effective. Um, many people have asked what the relationship is between his work on Plato's problem and Orwell's problem and there's uh, some, to my mind, silly um, speculation on this. The fact is these are different domains. Uh, but the style of argumentation, of course, is similar. And the style of argumentation um, was unfamiliar uh, in, this, in the domains of linguistics and psychology. Uh, and he brought uh, what you might uh, call the Galilean style of argumentation to this domain, um, uh, using abstraction and idealization as uh, the major sort of analytical tools. And there's something analogous, analogous to that in his work on politics, um, where the, the nature of the discussion, his work is very different from, one, from what is familiar uh, in those domains. Um, and he seeks there to help us all, I think, to develop some sort of intellectual self-defense um, against the, uh, the power of these totalitarian systems and the uh, propaganda systems that we're exposed to every day. And uh, uh, he emphasizes that this is something that one has to do with other people. Uh, just as in science, um, we progress uh, through cooperation and interaction uh, with others. Um, so this evening he will be talking about his work on Orwell's problem. Let me point out uh, that outside the hall, 
Um, there are uh, booths. The IWW has, uh, has a booth. The University Bookstore has a booth with uh, a selection of gnomes, uh, books on both linguistics and psychology and on politics, um, books that I think are uh, quite uh, accessible accounts of his work. And this evening he will talk about um, uh, the New World Order, uh, Changing Visions. Noam Chomsky. I was asked to uh, announce a couple of things that are coming up. Uh, Oh, I'm very obedient, especially when I agree. Uh, These are events concerning Mumia Abu-Jamal. First is a December 9th march and demonstration from the FBI building the Supreme Court. I presume that means Washington. Uh, December 12th conference in Philadelphia. And uh, April 24th event, which I hope won't be necessary, called a million for Mumia demonstration in Philadelphia. This is about, as you don't know, a case that's a pretty clear case of judicial execution and a notorious one. Uh, Well, since uh, David brought up Orwell, I might mention that uh, in his defense that he didn't only write about thought control in totalitarian societies. It's perfectly true that that was the you know, well, thrust, main thrust of his work, and it's certainly what he's known for. Uh, but he did write an interesting essay called uh, Literary Censorship in England, and it was about uh, thought control in free societies. Picked England as the example because he was there. And the point that he made is that it really wasn't all that different from the totalitarian Soviet Union. It was just done in different ways. Uh, But he said that, in fact, one of the ways he mentioned is a good education. You'll be happy to know. So if you have a good education, I presume he meant, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and those places, uh, you just have it instilled in you that there are certain things it just wouldn't do to say uh, or even to think if the system's working properly. Uh, And he also talked about private ownership of the press and other factors that, as he puts it, uh, end up um, with the result that unpopular ideas are, uh, uh, and what he called inconvenient facts, uh, are silenced with uh, surprising effectiveness. Well, that's not very well known, and there's a reason for it. Um, It was intended as the introduction to his famous animal farm, which made him a household word, you know, satire on the Soviet Union. Uh, But as if to prove his point, uh, it was uh, silenced with uh, surprising effectiveness. It didn't appear for unknown reasons, which his biographers don't go into, though they must know. Uh, And it was discovered about 25 years later, long after his death, in his unpublished papers. So it's true that... uh, Orwell is known for his attack on the other guy, uh, but uh, he uh, generalized the point. And the more important points, the ones that have to do with us, which are always the most important, uh, those uh, have been, as he put it, kept dark and silenced with surprising effectiveness, still unknown for the most part. 
except the real Orwell aficionados. Uh, well, that message is worth bearing in mind. He was writing about England, but applies to us as well, and more importantly, because of American power. Uh, it was American power, in fact, that established the current world order. Uh, there are only occasional moments in human affairs when uh, you can sensibly, when there are changes that are dramatic and significant enough so that it makes sense to talk about um, a world order. One of them, uh, probably the most dramatic and the most easily timed, surely, was uh, in 1945 at the end of the uh, most devastating single catastrophe in human history, which left much of the industrial world either seriously damaged or in ruins, uh, except for the United States, which was unscathed and, in fact, had benefited enormously from the war. Industrial production more than tripled. Uh, that uh, ended the Depression, which had not been affected very much by the New Deal, uh, and it set the stage for the next phase of history. The United States at that time had about half the world's total wealth and unparalleled military power and uh, security of, uh, at a level that had no precedent, and perfectly naturally dominant forces in the state corporate system uh, plan to use that power to uh, organize the world in accord with their own perceived self-interest. That's what's technically called the national interest uh, in uh, academic writing and the media and so on. Uh, and so these truisms, which is what kind of a curiosity about the intellectual culture, is that these truisms, which is what they are, are commonly described as a Marxist view, which is kind of odd since... The first person I ever, who I know of who articulated them clearly was Adam Smith, uh, and perhaps the person who most lucidly articulated them was Winston Churchill. Uh, and uh, you know, it shouldn't strain the intelligence of an eight-year-old to figure out that that's the way the world works. Uh, anyway, it does. If you have a good education, that's an inconvenient fact, but uh, it's a fact. Uh, well... Uh, how do you organize the world? Uh, the, uh, uh, there were conflicting visions. The United U.S. elites had their picture of how it ought to be organized, but it was certainly not uh, uniform by any means. And opposing forces had to be uh, dealt with somehow. If you want to borrow some Cold War rhetoric, they had to be contained or possibly rolled back if that could be done. Uh, and that was done with varying degrees of success. Uh, the basic conflicts, of course, persist, and they persist for quite simple reasons. They're about fundamental values, about uh, justice and freedom and human rights. Uh, and and uh, these values are constantly an arena of conflict between um, the more powerful, between centers of power and most of the rest, that's a good deal of history, and the last half century is no exception to that. Well, at the onset of the current era, at the end of the Second World War, uh, there were uh, very, uh, uh, the, the framers of the New World Order, uh, they had to face these challenges uh, everywhere. Uh, first, they had to face them at home. I mean, domestically, in the United States, what had to be contained or rolled back was the fact that a large majority of the population 
had rather strong commitments to uh, more or less social democratic ideals, sometimes a lot more far-reaching than that, uh, positions that the business world quite rightly uh, regarded as a threat to its traditional domination of U.S. society. Uh, as they put it in their own internal publications, it was the hazard-facing industrialists in the rising political power of the masses, uh, which had to be contained and suppressed. Uh, uh, that was uh, it, uh, that was then. Uh, you, that's a constant theme that runs through. Came up again uh, in the wake of the uh, uh, turmoil of the 1960s, uh, which uh, led to. Uh, Concerns among elites, in this case liberal elites, uh, about what they call the crisis of democracy, the fact that large parts of the population that are usually apathetic and passive and obedient were trying to enter the political arena to press their own demands. It's a crisis of democracy which had to be overcome. They incidentally expressed particular concern about what they called the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young, uh, the ones who make sure that you don't have uh, that the wrong thoughts don't come to mind uh, and the period since the early 1970s has been one of uh, a doctrinal assault uh, against the effort the rather successful in many ways uh, liberatory elements of the 1960s that's the modern period but going back to uh, uh, the early period the early the mid 19. 40s, these were major problems, uh, and it's interesting to look at how they were dealt with, but can't go into it now. Uh, well, there were similar problems right throughout the industrial world. Uh, there they were enhanced by the fact that the anti-fascist resistance uh, had uh, quite considerable prestige and appeal at the end of the war, and often it had a sort of radical democratic thrust to it. Uh, also, traditional conservative the traditional conservative order had been discredited because of its association with fascism. Well, the first first task of the United States and Britain uh, after the war was to restore that traditional order in its essentials. Uh, and that was a major, it was done all over the world in one or another form, sometimes bloodily, sometimes in other ways, mostly in ugly ways. Uh, that should be chapter one of post-Second World War history. Well, as in the United States, that project continues. It's taken new forms in the last couple of decades uh, under, you know, under the guise of what's sometimes called neoliberalism or uh, uh, economic rationalism or uh, the free market and other terms that are permeated with a good deal of fraud and hypocrisy. I'll come back to that. Uh, in the third world, there were similar problems in the 40s. Uh, and there they were compounded by pressures to uh, dismantle the imperial systems and the legacy that they had left, the legacy of subordination and dependency. Uh, and throughout the Third World, rather similar policies were imposed, but you can really see them in their starkest clarity in Latin America. And the reason is because there the United States really reigned supreme. I mean, there were essentially no challenges. So you can see the policies formulated, you read them in internal documents, sometimes public ones, and executed with uh, pretty dramatic clarity. Uh, 
the, uh, there, uh, when I say there were no challenges, that's not quite true. Uh, there was one major challenge, and that was the domestic population uh, in Latin America. Uh, there, uh, there was a threat, and it was recognized right away. Uh, the State Department records from the mid-40s, uh, early and mid-40s, talk about the concern, their concern with what they called the philosophy of new nationalism that was sweeping all over Latin America. <clears throat> I'm now quoting. Uh, it was embracing policies designed to bring about a broader distribution of wealth and to raise the standard of living of the masses on the principle that the first beneficiaries of a country's resources should be the people of that country. Uh, the name for that evil doctrine is uh, radical nationalism or economic nationalism. Uh, that's what's called in official state papers. And, of course, it's unacceptable. Uh, the first beneficiaries of a country's resources uh, should be uh, U.S. investors, their counterparts elsewhere, and the local associates. That's taken for granted. Uh, we have to protect our resources as the chair of the uh, State Department's policy planning staff put it, uh, George Kennan, famous humanist. Our resources happen to be somewhere else, but they're ours, and we have to protect them and make sure that we're the first beneficiaries. Uh, there was a conflict over this, and in February 1945, at a hemispheric conference, a U.S. power naturally prevailed, and the United States imposed what was called the Economic Charter of the Americas, which called for an end economic nationalism in all its forms, so none of this nonsense. Uh, well, there followed a cruel and bloody half-century still going on, uh, and these were central themes throughout, and they remain so. Uh, they're very much alive today, <clears throat> although here, too, uh, they take the form of, uh, they've changed somewhat in style and form. Now they're in the framework of a certain kind of globalization in a very special form, uh, which is crafted primarily to serve the interests of those with power perfectly, naturally, transnational corporations, financial institutions, the state elites, and so on. Well, the most critical part of the third world uh, then and now as well was the Middle East. And there's a simple reason for that. It was the locus of the world's major energy supplies and remained so. Uh, State Department didn't mince words about it. It was uh, called uh, the greatest material prize in world history uh, and uh, the strategically most important part of the world, a stupendous source of strategic power and so on. That's the Middle East. And it was clear uh, who had to be the... Uh, first beneficiaries of those resources. Uh, they had to be under effective U.S. control. Uh, they had to be accessible on terms that are acceptable to U.S. power, U.S. leadership. And the main concern was the huge profits that they generate. Uh, they had to flow primarily to the United States, uh, secondarily to its uh, junior partner as the British Foreign Office uh, ruefully described itself uh, in uh, the mid-1945 internal documents recently released. Uh, the profits have to be recycled by local managers um, who are supposed to be de dependent on the global rulers. Uh, the British in their day in the sun had a nice name for them in internal documents. They called them the Arab facade. 
behind which the British would exercise actual rule. They're still around. They're still the Arab facade. So that's the structure, um, basic structure of the system. Naturally, it uh, engenders continual conflict. The people of the region don't understand uh, why they shouldn't be the beneficiaries of the resources of that region, kind of backward that way. Uh, they, and that causes problems. Uh, in internal documents, the problems which have been going on since the Second World War, and in fact long before, uh, they're called uh, the problem of radical nationalism, economic nationalism, and so on. For the general public, for people like us, there are different terms used for them. They're called international terrorism, of really a big intellectual, uh, the crisis, the clash of civilizations, or some other fancy term. But it's good old-fashioned radical nationalism. The strange idea that the first beneficiaries of a country's resources should be the people of that country and that there should be efforts to, to construct policies uh, designed to bring about a broader distribution of wealth and to raise the standard of living of the masses in State Department terminology. Uh, well, that goes on, and it's likely that it will become worse, at least if the consensus of geologists is anywhere near accurate. Uh, that is that... Uh, uh, the uh, current oil glut and extremely low prices, I mean, at the pump in the United States, they're lower than they've been since the Second World War uh, in real terms. It's generally assumed that that's a temporary phenomenon uh, and that uh, there is a, uh, a, an oil shortage coming, probably not too far. Uh, the reason for that belief is that the rate of discovery uh, has declined, which went up from about 1850 until the mid-1960s, kept, kept going up. It's been declining since the mid-60s, despite much more elaborate technology and deep drilling and so on, keeps going down. Uh, and uh, the available oil, which is some rough estimate of it, uh, is uh, being used up very fast. In fact, close to half of the known exploitable capacity has been used since the oil crisis of the early 70s, and it's accelerating. Uh, so that, you know, you just put um, about, uh, furthermore, about half of the known exploitable capacities in the Middle East, uh, which means that that region of the world uh, will become, you know, it will be looming larger and larger uh, in the effort to control the whole world. Uh, uh, and... Uh, and those are, you know, not certain but reasonable prospects unless there's something radically new discovered that looks as if that's what's coming. There's a general prediction that about half of total known capacity will have been used up by within a decade or maybe two decades. Anyway, not very distant future. And after that, as far as anybody knows, there'll be a decline and a shift to Middle East sources as the major center. There's a lot of hype about the Caspian Sea and so on, but that's apparently mostly fake, according to oil uh, company sources. They claim it's being hyped by the United States government for political reasons as part of their anti their, their effort to uh, develop an alliance with Europe against Iran, which they so far haven't been able to do. So they're kind of talking about Caspian Sea, but the estimates are that that's maybe on the order of uh, North Sea oil, not very large. A couple of years' use at most. Uh, the, and 
uh, and most of it isn't in that region. It's in Kazakhstan. Uh, well, anyhow, those are prospects that are expected, which means the Middle East will be, be a major center of conflict and turmoil, very probably. There are new alignments taking shape there, which if you want to, you should keep your eyes on them. Uh, it's not yet, and part of it's already uh, there, part of it's taking shape, a kind of an alignment between, uh, which is, this one's very visible, uh, Turkey, Israel, and the Palestinian administration, which is supposed to keep the Palestinians under control. They're supposed to play the role, basically, that the black leadership of the Bantustans played in, uh, under the apartheid regime. That's what the Y agreement was about. Uh, so those three are sort of on one side. The Turkey-Israel relation is now very visible and frightening people. On the other side, you can see a kind of, a, and this must be worrying people in the State Department, no end in the planning centers. There's the beginnings of uh, interactions, rapprochement between Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, uh, Syria, in part frightened by the Turkey-Israel relationship that's being established under U.S. power with the junior partner following loyally behind, as always. Uh, and it's, this is a recipe for a lot of trouble in the future. Uh, well, there's a lot to say about all these matters, but uh, and plenty of aspects of the post-war, post-World War II world and global system that I haven't even mentioned. But let's drop that, I'll, if you're interested. I'll be glad to talk about it later and turn to something different, uh, namely the institutional framework that was designed for world order in the, in the mid-40s. That's 50 years ago. Uh, asked how it's fared and uh, where it stands today. Uh, that institutional framework had three basic pillars. Uh, there was an international political order, there was a human rights order, and an economic order. The political order is uh, articulated in the United Nations Charter. Uh, the, uh, let me say a little about each. The first, the political order, that's essentially the UN Charter. Uh, the uh, Charter has some simple, that's a long document, but it has, it's based on a very simple principle, namely it bars the threat or use of force uh, in international affairs, threat or use of force. Uh, and there are only two exceptions to that, which are clearly specified and more or less irrelevant to the real world. Uh, one is uh, if the Security Council of the United Nations uh, unanimously authorizes the use of force or the threat of force uh, after having determined that peaceful means uh, have failed. The second exception uh, is famous Article 51, which permits... Uh, self-defense against armed attack uh, until the Security Council acts. Armed attack's pretty narrowly defined concept in international law. That means a sudden, overwhelming attack. So, for example, if uh, Cuba were to land troops in Washington, uh, the way the United States is supposed to respond uh, is to inform the Security Council and ask them to do something about it. Uh, and until the Security Council acts, the United States is permitted to use force and self-defense against the Cuban invasion. Uh, that example may be hypothetical. I'm not sure. The Cuban th a couple of months ago, the Cuban threat was officially downgraded by the Pentagon. Uh, that elicited a lot of anger on Capitol Hill, and there was rejected by the White House. Uh, at the same time, the European Union was... Uh, uh, 
bringing charges against the United States and the World Trade Organization, U.S. embargo against Cuba for violating international law, as has already been determined by every relevant international body, and the U.S. refused to accept World Trade Organization jurisdiction, claiming a national security exception, uh, meaning that the Cuban threat is still live, so you better make sure you got your gas masks handy and your desks to hide under and so on. Well, anyway, that's the sole exception. These are the sole exceptions. There's, of course, no enforcement mechanism uh, apart from the great powers, and decisively that means the United States. But uh, the problem is that the great powers, uh, as far as I know, universally reject the principles of the Charter, and the small powers would too if they were big enough to get away with it. Uh, they reject them in practice and uh, also in the case of the United States explicitly in doctrine as well, very clearly so, in fact. Uh, the doctrine has been stated repeatedly, uh, maybe stated most clearly by uh, Dean Acheson, leading statesman at the time. He was a senior advisor to the Kennedy administration. Uh, he was justifying the plainly illegal blockade of Cuba in 1962 before a meeting of the American Society of International Law. And he pointed out, he stated that, uh, uh, a, quoting him, a situation in which uh, our country's power, position, and prestige are involved cannot be treated as a legal issue. Okay, so if U.S. power, position, and prestige are involved, forget about international law, uh, the Charter, or anything else. That's pretty plain uh, and accurate. Uh, there's no need and no time uh, to uh, go through the practice of the past half century one recent example is the bombing of the uh, pharmaceutical plant in Sudan. It's quite trivial in historical context, though, of course, a war crime, uh, and didn't arouse much concern here. But I suppose that if there was a terrorist attack that had destroyed uh, half of U.S. pharmaceutical supplies, I might have maybe made it to the back pages of the newspapers. Uh, anyhow, that's a minor example of, um, the in that case, the use of force in radical violation of international law with hardly even a plea to, of any cover. But it's quite standard. Uh, you read it in the front pages every time there's any talk about, say, bombing Iraq. Uh, obviously, that's not done with Security Council support. Uh, the U.S., of course, knows it can't get the Security Council to agree to that. So, therefore, it's just blatant violation of the central principles of international law, even the threat. This is independent of what you may happen to think about the regime or anything else. We're talking here about the international political order. Uh, what's kind of interesting about the past 15 years or so, the, since Reagan, uh, is that uh, it's all become very open and public. Uh, so that's the one real innovation of the recent period. So the United States, during the Reagan administration, uh, claimed officially that Article 51, self-defense against armed attack, uh, that that includes, I'm quoting, self-defense against future attack. That was, that, was, that was a justification for the bombing of Libya. Or it permits the United States, quoting, to defend its interests. That was the justification for the invasion of Panama. Uh, the, uh, it's even gotten more ludicrous in the uh, Clinton years. Uh, but uh, the basic point is we'll do what we feel like. 
and, and now that's open and unchallenged, uh, accepted by the intellectual community, except maybe they question it on pragmatic grounds. Uh, so that's the end of the UN Charter. That's the end, official end. Uh, it's always, it's never been effective, uh, but uh, it's by now officially dead uh, about the practice. It's, I should, don't, won't go into it, but the, this has been amply demonstrated in action in uh, shocking ways, and again, always with the acquiescence uh, and the uh, just the support of the intellectual classes, the educated classes, those who've got a good education uh, and know which things are inconvenient facts. So there are no such facts as, say, the American invasion of South Vietnam in the early 1960s or the uh, U.S. war uh, against the church and other uh, miscreants in uh, Central America in the 1980s and uh, on and on. Those didn't happen in official history uh, or of course, they happened in real history. Uh, in a free society, in a free institution of higher learning, these would be central components of the curriculum. And in fact, it's a kind of a reasonable measure of the freedom of the university to ask exactly how much attention is given to these central events of modern history and the doctrine that uh, lies behind them. I believe that is an exercise for those who might be interested. We know what the answer is going to be. Well. Let's turn to the second pillar of world order, the uh, human rights regime. That's, of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, in a couple of days, on December 10th, that'll be the 50th anniversary of its uh, signing, unanimous signing. And we'll probably be regaled with uh, condemnations of the horrendous uh, human rights violations of somebody else. Uh, particularly official enemies, and those charges will probably be accurate or reasonably accurate, but partial. Uh, you can be pretty confident that the inconvenient facts won't be mentioned. Uh, a vastly more important topic uh, will be ignored, namely human rights violations and often terrible atrocities, uh, which can be charged in whole or in part to our account easy to think of examples, many of them ongoing. Well, these are, whatever their scale, their scale happens to be huge, but even if their scale was slight, they would be far more important than enemy atrocities or other atrocities for quite elementary moral reasons, uh, moral truisms. Namely, these are the cases that we can act to mitigate or to terminate. So on the most elementary principles, those are the most important. Uh, the comparative treatment of enemy atrocities in our own is very instructive. Uh, and again, I'll put it aside. There's plenty in print about it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know of any analysis of Stalinist propaganda. But I assume it was sort of a mirror image of ours. Uh, it'd be interesting to discover that. In fact, it'd be interesting to discover if it sinks to the depths of moral cowardice uh, of our treatment of Western treatment, American treatment of the atrocities chargeable home. That's another good topic for somebody to look at. Uh, if you want, you can get a certain insight into the real understanding of human rights uh, by looking at a doctrine that's well known to international lawyers, but not much beyond. It's called the Hull Formula. It's attributed to U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull of the Roosevelt administration. 
this formula defines what it calls the international minimum standard of civilization. Uh, well, that standard doesn't involve genocide or torture and other such marginal issues. Uh, rather, uh, it is, I'm quoting, the right to adequate, effective, and prompt compensation for expropriated property where full compensation is to be at fair market value as determined by the former owners. Uh, that's the international minimum standard of civilization. Uh, and it's a formula that applies in rather intricate ways. Uh, for example, it's the basis for the U.S. economic embargo and terrorist war against Cuba for 40 years. Uh, that's been carried out because of Cuba's failure to meet this minimum standard of civilization. That is, it failed to offer what Washington unilaterally decided was fair compensation for nationalized property. So the formula applies there. On the other hand, it doesn't apply, for some odd reason, to U.S. investors and the U.S. government who stole the Cuban properties at the turn of the century, uh, when Cuba was under U.S. military occupation and consented to this robbery by force. Uh, but that expropriation was okay. It doesn't fall under this principle. Uh, the principle also doesn't hold for uh, the U.S. government and private powers who stole Spanish and British possessions in Cuba and the Philippines at the same time. Uh, after the bloody conquest of the Philippines, which killed a couple hundred thousand people, uh, the United States uh, threw out the Spanish concession for the, for example, for the Spanish-owned Manila Railway Company on the grounds that, I'm quoting, it had been inspired by Spanish imperialistic motives, say, unlike the uh, U.S. possessions that Cuba nationalized. Uh, so it's a rather subtle doctrine. Uh, it also doesn't apply to the founding of the United States. Uh, that was based on expropriation of British properties, British possessions, and also the possessions of British supporters, who were about as numerous as the rebels in the Civil War uh, that was part of the global war going on at the time. Uh, it's called here the American Revolution, uh, actually a civil war with two sides supported by different great powers and more or less equally balanced at home. Uh, New York State alone gained close to $4 million, which was a huge sum in those days by taking the property of loyalists. But that's okay. That doesn't fall under the formula. Well, it goes on. You have to have a kind of subtle mind and good education to comprehend all of this and to understand what counts as an international minimum standard of civilization. Uh, and against that kind of background, you can understand more accurately the significance of the Universal Declaration uh, in the real world. Actually, one final comment on that, and then I'll go on. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, the, the central thesis of it is universality, of course. That means all of the rights enumerated are of equal status. And you're pretty sure to hear talk in the next uh, couple of days about, you know, the relativists, various bad guys, uh, plead Asian values and things like that. Again, the charges will be mostly accurate. Again, partial. Uh, you're unlikely to read editorials about the fact that the United States is a leader of the relativist camp, quite officially. Uh, one whole category of rights enumerated in the Universal Declaration is simply dismissed, uh, namely the socioeconomic provisions. Uh, according to the U.S. government, they have no status. Uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick, Reagan's ambassador to the U.N., uh, she described them as a letter to Santa Claus.
the uh, U.S. Ambassador Morris Abram, the ambassador of the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, described them as preposterous, uh, a dangerous incitement. Uh, actually, he was talking about the Declaration of the Right to Development that the U.N. was considering, which closely paraphrases the Universal Declaration, and which the U.S. proceeded to veto, uh, thereby vetoing central parts of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Well, maybe I'll be surprised, and there'll be an editorial about this, but uh, I'm not holding my breath. Uh, again, there's a lot more to say. If you read those provisions, you'll see why they have no status. Uh, so let's put that aside and turn to the international economic order, which is actually all over the front pages today. Uh, the reason that it's all over the front pages is that the crisis of the last 20 or 25 years uh, has finally become, begun to hit rich people. So now it's a crisis. Uh, up until now, it didn't exist. Uh, but now you can read it in the headlines. Uh, and by now, what's been happening is reasonably well known uh, for exactly that reason. Nothing new, just different victims or potential victims. Uh, the International Economic Order was also established in the mid-40s, 1944. It's the Bretton Woods system. Uh, 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 it's uh, uh, the Bretton Woods system designed by the United States and England uh, was essentially, I mean, theoretically not, but effectively then. Uh, it had two uh, basic principles. Uh, one principle was that it called for freeing up trade, so liberalizing trade. They wanted to get back to something like the period before World War I, uh, which we're only just about approaching in terms of scale of international economic transactions relative to the economy and so on. Scale, it's not all that novel. Uh, so they wanted, and during, between the two wars, it had declined a lot. So they wanted to liberalize trade. It's principle one. Uh, the second principle was to regulate uh, capital flow, keep exchange rates fixed. Uh, that's actually still, you can still find that in the IMF rules. Uh, the reason for the second principle was in part uh, a belief, which is probably, probably correct, at least reasonable, that uh, capital flight, um, short-term speculative capital flows, particularly and exchange rate fluctuations, which go along with them, uh, they're going to undermine trade. Uh, trade and, and investment. And in fact, recent experience tends to be consistent with that assumption. Uh, the more important reason, however, was again a kind of truism, which wasn't controversial then and isn't controversial now. And that is that free flow of capital undermines democracy and undermines the welfare state. Uh, they were far too uh, popular to ignore in the mid-20th century. Uh, actually, in, if you go back to an earlier period, say, during the period of British domination of the world before World War I, nowhere near as strong as U.S. domination, but substantial. Uh, during that period, as I just mentioned, the level of globalization in gross terms was not very different from today, actually higher in some respects. Uh, capital flow uh, was roughly at today's levels relative to the economy, but uh, in those days, economic policy, state economic policy, could be designed without very much concern for the rabble because they didn't have a voice. Uh, it was just, you know, voting was restricted and in the industrial societies, you know, kind of very weak imitation of democracy. Therefore, national economic policies could be set 
and exchange rates could be fixed and so on, uh, even though there was rapid capital flow. And in fact, a major part of current economic policy is to try to get things back to those happy days when you could sort of disregard the population and uh, just leave decisions in the hands of the right people, you know, financial capital and so on. That's a large part of the history of the last 20 or so years. Uh, now, the truism about free capital flow undermining democracy and the welfare state, that was emphasized quite explicitly by the negotiators, the U.S. and British negotiators at Bretton Woods. And the reasoning is straightforward. Uh, capital controls, that is, restrictions on free movement of capital across borders, uh, they enable governments to carry out fiscal policies like monetary and tax policies uh, that are, from the point of view of investors, irrational. That is, they only help people, not profits. So they sustain employment or sustain incomes and social programs and so on. And such policies can be introduced uh, without fear of capital flight uh, if it's constrained. Uh, on the other hand, if there is free flow of capital, you get what some international economists have called a virtual senate uh, of financial capital. It can impose its own social policies simply by the threat of capital flight, you know, sending the capital out of the country, which leads to higher interest rates and uh, uh, economic slowdown, uh, budget cuts for health and education and so on, and recession or maybe collapse. Basically, the IMF principles of prescriptions, if you look at them. Well, as I say, all of this was articulated very clearly at the time by the U.S.-British negotiators, and it's not particularly controversial then or now. If you have free flight, free flow of capital, you're going to get a virtual Senate uh, and democracy and you know, the welfare, the social contract will be undermined. Very, it's important to keep these really pretty elementary observations in mind when you look at the current period. Well, the Bretton Woods system as originally established uh, was pretty much in place um, in, for about 20, 20 25 years or so. That's what's often called the golden age of post-war state capitalism. Had, by historical standards, high, uh, good economic performance, so high, high rates of growth, um, both of the economy and of production, expansion of the social contract, and so on. This was dismantled. The system was dismantled from the early 1970s. Uh, one major move was when Nixon simply unilaterally abrogated some of the basic principles. The other major financial centers joined in. Uh, by the 1980s, capital controls were mostly gone uh, in the rich countries, completely gone. The smaller economies held, up, held on to them. South Korea, for example, which is a significant economy, kept them through the 80s. It was compelled to drop them in the early 90s. Uh, that's widely regarded as a major factor in the recent collapse, uh, along with radical failures in the private sector throughout East and Southeast Asia. Big topic. Uh, I should say, I, don't, can't go in, I won't go into it, but I ought to say that uh, serious analysts, at least, uh, uh, consider the East Asia, East and Southeast Asia are quite different, but the East Asian economic miracle is considered quite real. Uh, uh, so, chief economist of the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, highly regarded economist, he's in the after the crisis. He's emphasized that the East Asian economic miracle, as he calls it, was, in his words, an amazing achievement uh, historically without precedent. 
he also points out that it was based on quite significant departures from official doctrines uh, and that it ought to be sustainable unless it's destroyed by financial markets. Uh, he, well, let me quote him, uh, he points out that in the East Asian countries, uh, South Korea and Taiwan, government, as in Japan, uh, government took major responsibility for promotion of economic growth, abandoning what he calls the religion that markets know best in intervening to enhance technology transfer, uh, relative equality, uh, education, health, uh, along, he doesn't say this, but along with industrial policy coordination and strict capital controls. Uh, he also mentions that the rich countries had followed somewhat similar paths, as the World Bank has also acknowledged, but nowhere near accurately. And in fact, that's the basis for economic development historically and in every case that we know. Uh, well, what happened after the Bretton Woods system collapsed uh, in the uh, early 70s? Essentially, the Golden Age ended. Uh, since then, it's been a period of... Uh, much uh, poorer uh, economic performance. Again, you can argue about causal effects, but the facts are not controversial. There's been a slowdown, especially in the industrial world. I mean, let's keep to the industrial world, the Western industrial world. It, you know, it's a little variation from place to place, but essentially there's been a slowdown of uh, growth, both of the economy and of productivity that's noticeable. Uh, also trade, if you look more closely, uh, it's a lot of claims about an explosion of trade, and there's a few instances where it's correct, but overall it's not. Trade seems to be going up uh, relative to the general economy, but that's because the economy has been going down faster than the rate of growth of trade has been going down, so the ratio is higher. Uh, the, uh, that's one major effect, poor economic performance. Uh, secondly, particularly in the United States and England, but to some extent in the general industrial world, uh, incomes have stagnated or declined for the great majority of the population. In the United States, working conditions uh, have gotten a lot worse. Uh, social services, as you know, have deteriorated. Uh, infrastructures collapsed. There's huge debt. Uh, the welfare state is kind of in tatters, sort of what would be expected from the decisions of the virtual Senate. Uh, in the United States uh, and in England, inequality has, which was declining during the Golden Age, uh, it's rapidly increased. It's now back to roughly what it was in the 1920s. Uh, that all of these effects leave a kind of superfluous population who aren't very, you know, don't contribute much to profit formation. In third world dependencies, you carry out things like what's called social cleansing in Colombia, like you kill them or something like that. Uh, but this is a civilized society, so we treat them differently. We throw them in jail. Uh, and the rate of incarceration has been going up very rapidly, uh, right along with these policies. It's sort of made easier by race, class, correlations, and so on. Uh, but the basic phenomenon is nothing much to do with them. Uh, so throw them in jail. Uh, around 1980, this has nothing to do with crime rates, incidentally. U.S. crime rates are sort of toward the high end of the rich countries, but not off the spectrum. There is one exception, namely killing with guns, but that has to do with the gun culture and the gun laws, not uh, crime rates. Uh, the, uh, and, and as you'd expect, in around 1980, the United States was within the spectrum, sort of toward the high end, in incarceration of the population. 
Uh, that tripled during the 1980s. It's still going up very fast. Uh, it's now five to ten times as high as any other industrial society, and it's long been a world record among any societies that have meaningful statistics. Uh, the, uh, and it's not insubstantial. So, for example, the numbers in prison, the numbers of working-age people in prison, uh, would, if you counted them, that would add about 2% to the unemployment rate, which is no small amount. Uh, there's also a big prison industry developing, and uh, you know, it's becoming a major private boondoggle, even for big military industry and so on. A lot of money involved. Well, that's, these are other changes. Another change is that, particularly in the 1990s, uh, profits uh, went through the roof. Uh, the business press has been just ecstatic through the 90s. Actually, this is up until the middle of this year. You know, things changed around August. Uh, but up until then, the business press was absolutely ecstatic, uh, you know, stupendous, uh, dazzling. I couldn't find words for it. Uh, uh, a major change around 1970, that early 70s, was an astronomical increase in capital flows that came from the deregulation. Uh, and mostly short-term, very short-term, like around 80% of it, is uh, a week or less, you know, means comes back to where it started within a week, often days or hours. Uh, the amounts are now huge. Nobody really knows, but it's estimated about a trillion and a half dollars a day or something of that sort. It's virtually unrelated to the real economy, probably harmful to it. Uh, back in 1970, when the total was far smaller, about 90% of foreign exchanges were estimated to be concerned with the real economy, meaning like investment and trade, 10% speculative. Uh, by now, general guesses are around maybe 5% related to the real economy. The rest, speculative and very short term, with the effects you'd expect. Uh, it, there's, uh, it's well known, those of you who uh, it's well known in the economics literature that there's basically no theory for financial markets. Uh, they're governed, standard terminology is, by panics, manias, and crashes. There's a lot of irrational herd behavior. Uh, it's what's called technical trading or noise trading, you know, not related to economic fundamentals, but just like, you know, guesses as to how to make money in three seconds and so on. Uh, it leads to, there has been much more volatility of markets since the early 1970s, uh, a lot of panics, manias, and crashes, unpredictable and never predicted, uh, and bigger and bigger every time they come around. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, and they, the honest people admit it. Uh, recently, the, the Bank for International Settlements, which is, I guess, ranks as the most conservative institution around. It's the central bank of central bankers. Uh, they recently came out with their latest report in which they said, look, we don't know what's going on, and they urged humility uh, in the face of uh, uh, the turmoil in the world. As I said, it's now becoming a crisis because rich people are getting worried instead of the usual victims. Uh, the IMF did a study of uh, banking crises from 1980 to 1995, that 15-year period, uh, and they found that about... Uh, a fifth of the country, that's almost every country in the world, around 180 countries, uh, one-fifth of them had serious banking crises and another 60% and had significant problems, often recurrent problems, a lot of bailouts and, you know, again, very volatile 
and irrational markets and rapid, very rapid fluctuations of exchange rates in response to speculative flows. Uh, all of that means everything's out of hand. Uh, and now, as I say, it's worrying rich people. Uh, the, uh, uh, another feature of this period, since around 1970, uh, has been an attack on free markets. That's not what you read, but that's what's been happening. Uh, the words of, let me just, the head of economic current, head of economic research of the World Trade Organization did a technical monograph on this a couple of years ago. Uh, he described this period as one of what he called sustained assault on free markets, uh, led by the Reagan administration. Uh, he estimated uh, Reaganite protectionist measures, which were extreme, at about three times those of other industrial countries in their effects. Uh, these are often not tariffs. They're what are called non-tariff barriers, just various other devices which essentially block trade and are intended to do that. Uh, during the Reagan years, which was, ex I mean, the Reagan period is called conservative. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. It was an extreme radical statist administration. Uh, the ratio of state expenditures to gross national product shot up. The you know, debt shot up. And uh, protectionism also increased. It approximately doubled during the Reagan years. Broke post-war records. Public subsidies increased enormously. There were bailouts, uh, trans transfers to the public sector, in effect. Uh, it was, there was reasons for it. The reason was, uh, go back to around 1980, you'll notice there was a lot of concern about the industrial decline, about the decline of the American economy. And there were calls for what was called reindustrialization of America. Uh, and in order to carry out the reindustrial reindustrialization re of America, the Reagan administration turned to the classic device. Uh, government spending, in particular Pentagon spending, uh, which since the Second World War has been the absolute foundation of the economy. Uh, every dynamic sector of the economy, sort of virtually every one, flows off it. Uh, some extreme examples, like a current example is the Internet, but computers, electronics, uh, you pick it, uh, largely initiated and subsidized through by the public, uh, then handed over to private capital, uh, and the Pentagon has been a favored device for doing this. One reason why the Pentagon budget stays high independently of any conflict and why it's strongly supported, in fact increased by people like Gingrich and Lott and others who parade as conservatives. Uh, can, in other words, all this market discipline is fine for poor people, but not for rich folk. Uh, they have to keep the cycle of dependency going. Well, in 1980, it was a big problem. Uh, uh, they had to reindustrialize America. They turned to the Pentagon, uh, as, and there was a huge increase in the Pentagon budget. Uh, it, it was pretty explicit what it was about. Uh, so, for example, the Pentagon picked up, uh, developed a program, manufacturing technology program, Mantech, it was called, uh, which was going to overcome the failures of American management. American management had failed to keep up with uh, modern management techniques that had been pioneered largely by the Japanese, you know, lean production and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so they had to be given a shot in the arm. Uh, the Pentagon devised this program uh, to design what they called the factory of the future with uh, automation and 
flexible production, lean production, and all this kind of stuff. And the purpose was straightforward. It was, in their words, to boost the market share and industrial leadership of American industry, which had fallen way behind because of management incompetence. Uh, the same is true of the national laboratories, so the DOE labs, the Department of Energy labs. Uh, their explicit goal is, to, in their words, to move federally developed technologies into private in industry and academia. Uh, academia is just one of the funnels by which public funds go into private pockets. I owe my job to it. I shouldn't complain too much. MIT is a large part of this. Uh, but uh, that's the purpose of the, of the government labs. And the reindustrialization, it worked. The, it, the idea was to overcome management failures, to save central components of the economy, the whole industrial system, from mainly Japanese competition, uh, and also to put them in a position to dominate the emerging technologies and markets uh, of the future. Again, as I say, the Internet is a and information technology generally are good examples. The Internet, for example, was designed for about 30 years, mostly, in the public sector, first by the Pentagon and the National Science Foundation. Uh, it was finally commercialized over the opposition of about two-thirds of the population. Uh, but uh, that was just a few years ago, 1995, in fact, uh, to the extent that there had been some private involvement. But if you check it back, it's usually federally funded initiative came out of the Information Processing Technology Office of the Pentagon for the most part uh, the, uh, since the 60s, but that's only one example. Well, all of that's continuing under Clinton, uh, including radical interference with free trade when it's convenient, and that runs across the spectrum of choices. So the Clinton administration has, in one way or another, barred everything from, you know, things ranging from Mexican tomatoes uh, openly because U.S. consumers preferred them to Florida-grown ones. They said so. That's at one end. The other end, Japanese supercomputers, uh, which were blocked by prohibitive tariffs pretty recently uh, for the open purpose of protecting U.S. manufacturers like Cray Enterprise, which is main, had been the main U.S. manufacturer of supercomputers. It's called private enterprise, but only because the profits are private. Uh, the um, markets are government under Buy America programs and things like that. Uh, much of the technology and the uh, funding has been public, uh, but uh, the privates are indeed, profits are indeed private, and when they couldn't manage, just slammed high tariffs on it. Uh, so that goes on, and that's an old story. That's the a good part of the history of industrial development, uh, uh, from actually for Britain as well before us. It goes to the United States, goes back to the early 1820s. Well, in the recent years, the mid 90s, there's been a lot of euphoria in the United States. Again, up till about August of this year, it's a switch point. But up till then, there's been a great deal of euphoria. Uh, about you know what's called the fairy tale economy. So you could read front page headlines in the New York Times about saying that Americans were smug and prosperous and the happy glow of the uh, uh, American boom and a fat and happy America is enjoying one of the greatest booms in American history and on and on. If you read through these euphoric accounts, they always give one example. Uh, that's the stock market. 
Uh, and it's true. The stock market has been an absolute fairy tale, especially for the top 1% of American households who own close to half the stock uh, and other assets and the top 10% who own most of the rest. Uh, what happens when you go down to the next 10%, you know, the next decile from 80 to 90% of income? Well, it turns out that their net worth has declined in the 1990s. Uh, meaning their debts increased faster than uh, their assets. Uh, and as you go down below the next 10%, down to the bottom, and the story just gets worse and worse, 80% uh, approximately of families are working a lot more hours under worse conditions just to keep from losing more ground. Uh, the, they haven't yet recovered the level of, the, of 1989, according to the latest statistics, let alone early 1970s when the great economic boom began to take off. Uh, all of this is without precedent in American history. This is a recovery from recession, and it's the rec first recovery uh, in which uh, most of the population was basically left out, you know, trying to get back to where they were uh, before the boom. Uh, as for growth, you know, economic growth and so on, this uh, greatest boom in American history is, in fact, one of the worst. It's the worst in the post-war period. Uh, it's the slowest. It's below economic growth is below even the quite anemic 70s and the 80s, way below the 50s and the 60s. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. It's a fairy tale for some people, undoubtedly. And those happen to be the ones who are writing the articles about it and the ones they meet in elegant restaurants and write parties and so on and so forth. So yeah, for them it's a fairy tale economy. Uh, you do get, uh, there's studies of consumer, you know, of uh, op consumer optimism, that sort of thing. They've been running pretty high, uh, but look a little more closely and you'll discover that the main reason is that people, as the researchers point out, have lowered their expectations. Uh, so now if you can get by, that's enough, you know, then you're happy. You don't expect your children to do much better. Maybe they'll do worse. That's a change. It's a new change in American history. Well, that's the fairy tale economy. Uh, and the reasons for the fairy tale are also pretty frankly explained. And we should listen to the explanations. So maybe the most uh, powerful and most respected person in the United States is the Fed chair, Alan Greenspan. And he's explained, uh, he's very proud of the economy that he presided over. Uh, and he explained how it works to Congress in his congressional testimony. He attributed the fairy tale to what he called uh, greater worker insecurity, uh, meaning workers are intimidated. You know, they're afraid to ask for uh, wage for raises and wages because they can just be fired or their jobs can be transferred to Mexico or something like that. Uh, the Clinton administration agreed at uh, economic report of the president attributed the economy, fairy tale economy, again, they're very proud of it, to what they called significant wage restraint. Yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, greater worker insecurity. Uh, workers are too intimidated to ask for a share in the good times. Uh, the, uh, it's reported in the business press. So Business Week had a study a couple of months ago showing that uh, about 90% of working people are uh, insecure. And that's good for the health of the economy. Any of you who study economics know that. There's a phenomenon called health of the economy, which has absolutely nothing to do with 
health of the population, I mean, even in the technical sense, uh, and the health of the economy is improved if people are scared and wages are down and you don't have to waste money on irrational things like what's good for the general population, uh, keeps inflation low enough to please financial institutions uh, and uh, concentrates wealth where it ought to be, top few percent. Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons for that. The threat of job transfers is one. Uh, that's one of the main purposes of the so-called trade agreements, and there's many others. Uh, I will skip further discussion about this because I'm going on too long. Uh, for a while, it looked as if this whole story was going to work. Uh, there were, it looked as if uh, this fairy tale uh, for the top few would work out and that it would be possible to maintain the uh, fraud about the markets knowing best and so on and so forth while calling on plenty of massive state intervention uh, to ensure that the rich don't have to face market discipline. Uh, that was all moving along rather nicely until about last summer uh, when, again, the threat started to reach the people who matter. Uh, since then, it's been, there's been a remarkable change in economic orthodoxy. It, it does change very quickly, very fast. If you look over the years, it's always flipping up and back. It's a very flexible science, it turns out. Uh, now the orthodoxy has changed. There are calls for capital controls from pretty surprising places, like the Bank for International Settlements, uh, Business Press, uh, World Bank. In one form or another, there's debates about it. Uh, even inside the IMF, the last bastion, there's concern about it now. And also some of the most passionate academic advocates of free trade, one of them a well-known Columbia University professor Jagdish Bhagwati has been writing angry articles all over the place. He's one of the most prominent free trade advocates in the profession, in, the, in foreign affairs and so on, condemning what he calls the Wall Street Treasury Complex, which is destroying the international economy uh, by imposing policies that free financial markets, I'm quoting him, through the IMF and so on. Uh, that's, uh, uh, that's change. Uh, and I think the change can be dated, at least, and maybe attributed, at least plausibly attributed, to the change in the victims. Uh, up until now, it's been mostly poor people. The majority of the population in countries like the United States, the third world, has been completely devastated by this. Uh, but sectors have been left out, the people who count, and now they're worried. They're worried that the whole system will lead to a kind of global meltdown. Well, how to, uh, uh, there's a reason why they're calling for humility. Uh, they don't know how to tame the destructive forces that have been unleashed. Uh, there have been some proposals. They look reasonable. They've been advanced by leading economists for 20 years or so. They're now sort of coming out of the, you know, they're now sort of moving into public discussion. They might work. They might not. Uh, they've been kept off the agenda of the powerful because they liked the way things were going. They liked those outcomes. Now, maybe not. Well, is this so-called globalized economy really out of control? Uh, that's, as I said, the call for humility is a good idea. But still, given what we know, it's pretty hard to believe. Uh, as I mentioned, in gross terms, it's not all that new. 
I mean, there are novelties, but uh, it, by gross measures, it's kind of like pre-World War I. Uh, and most of the interactions, most of the interchanges, are within uh, the major industrial societies, what's sometimes called the triad, you know, Europe, Europe, European Union, you know, North America, and Japan. Well, those are all countries where you can institute, where the public, in fact, could act to institute economic policy changes. These are countries where you can have public policy decisions. There aren't going to be any military coups, for example. It's not like third world country. Uh, it's, uh, 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 that means an, even within the framework of existing institutions, there are plenty of things you can think of that could well be enacted to uh, uh, restore sort of you know what's called golden age type structures and there's no reason to stop there I mean the institutions are not self-legitimizing never have been in history they're still not uh, they have to re they have to be challenged uh, justified and if they can't be justified which I think they can't uh, they can be changed that's all subject to uh, popular will with very few constraints in the rich industrial countries. Uh, of course, it's completely natural for uh, all the doctrinal institutions uh, to try to make you feel hopeless, to, you know, to divert public attention uh, away from the crucial issues uh, and try to bring about a mood of sort of hopelessness and despair and, you know, turn people to individual survival strategies and so on. And if you were working for a PR agency, nobody would have to tell you that that's what you have to do. It's obvious that that's what you have to do. It's been going on for centuries. Uh, it's understandable. Uh, and as always, understanding can uh, liberate people. Uh, it can liberate them to design and uh, follow a very different paths. And these could go quite far. Uh, they uh, could go to the dismantling of oppressive, illegitimate institutions, uh, new democratic, more democratic institutional arrangements. Uh, you can write through the economy. It's sort of obvious where to look, but there are plenty of others. Uh, and in fact, it may, we ought to be thinking about somehow trying to make it possible, should be within our reach, uh, to address in some serious way the uh, needless suffering and injustice that are that really define contemporary society uh, and uh, to demonstrate that the human species uh, is not some kind of lethal mutation uh, which is uh, destined to uh, destroy itself and a good deal more uh, in what amounts to the flick of an eye from an evolutionary point of view. That's actually not an unlikely prospect if things continue on the uh, in the present, the prevailing uh, conditions of social life. Okay, I'll stop there. <laughs>